So, gentlemen, this is uh, sermon number one, and I want to tell you what we need from you. We need you to pay attention to God and to you and to others, though not necessarily in that order. We need you to wake up in the morning and to spend your days doing what will contribute to your block, community, neighborhood, and world. We need you not to be convinced by advertisements and commercials and publicity which say that you must have something or someone else other than what God has placed in front of you today. We need you to communicate your fears and the things that keep you awake. We need you to take seriously your work, to take seriously your city, to take seriously your own health. We need you to cultivate an ear, not just for God and for others, but for yourself, because the ability to hear others is tied and twisted with the ability to listen well to ourselves. We need you to stop making excuses and to give yourselves to God. We need you to realize that God gives grace to the humble and that humility is simply seeing you for who you are and seeing the divine for who God really is. We need your life to matter for something other than how much you make, how many women you've loved, and how many babies you've had. We need you to look again at numbers altogether and to turn upside down the notions you've attached to them. We need you to build wealth, but in more areas than you first thought or have often been told. We need you to give yourselves to some hobby, to some way of playing, to some way of recreating so that you can stay sane. We need you to build and to create and to draw and to envision and to breathe deeply when you see something fantastic and unmistakably amazing. We need you to draw away even when you keep talking. We need you to pull apart so that you can be counseled by other voices. We need you to find times of silence daily and to lock yourself into the rhythm of Sabbath, keeping the command made for you. We need you to love our children, particularly when they aren't your own because nobody else may love them. We need you to a year from reading this list know at least one child's name, one child's family, one child's story, and one child's pain. We need you to cultivate a relationship with a person who will live longer than you so that you can hear their fears and concerns and spend all the rest of your days addressing them by God's grace. We need you to find a family whether or not they look like you and to give yourselves to them in big and small ways to make sure that the parents feel supported even though you may know nothing about parenting. To make the children feel encouraged even though children may scare you. To make sure that some figure in that family unit is a reminder that there is great love and possibility and integrity present. 
We need you to commit to our sisters, to our women, and to treat them as precious, powerful gifts whose purpose is to please God. We need you to respect them and to cherish them, especially when they aren't your wives, because they don't get enough respect. We need you to listen to them. And to befriend them for no other reason than that. We need you to hear their pains without another motive. We need you to take their burdens upon your shoulders and to carry their problems with them so that they can feel a community around them consisting of more than other women. We need you to pray for our sisters more than you pray for yourselves. We need you to question the men claiming to love them to make sure that their relationships aren't destructive but are life-giving. We need you to be faithful to your wives if you're married, holding them up as significant gifts. We need you to remind them of your love for them and to tell them through word and deed what they mean to you. We need many things from you, more than what I've named. So will you, by God's help, be greater than uh, your station in life, than your present situation, or than your status at this point. You are more than a box you've checked. More than an unemployed or very employed person. You are more than some unknown because we know you. We know you to be a beautiful man. We know you to be a strong man. We know you to be a man of God. We know you to be these things. We need you to be these things. Happy Father's Day. and You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we avail ourselves to you this morning. You are the only one who can take words that are prepared and to fit them to our ears to our hearts, and to our lives. So if you choose, use uh, this time uh, where I'm talking and speaking to minister to your people. Use pauses, prayers, preaching, worship, singing, as you've already done to change us to be more of your people, more of your children. I pray for every man who is here this morning. I pray for every woman who is here this morning. I pray that you would minister to us some kind of a way to live closer to you, more dependent upon you, more aware of you.
We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we celebrated uh, and participated in the baptisms of Abby Wassel and Joan Duran. And as a church, we got to see um, family members and friends come around them. And we heard their testimonies and how God has been at work changing their lives. And if you were here, you saw them baptized. And, and this morning, I want to talk to you uh, about baptism. I want to talk to you about your baptism. And I want, to, I want to ask you this morning to remember your baptism. And my, my purpose is not to convince any of you here to be baptized at the next possible time, because we generally baptize once a year. Maybe we'll do that a little more. So this isn't about signing up for the next opportunity. But, but for, for you who are here who are like me, and your baptism maybe is years and years away. It's not current. It's not a fresh memory. I want you to to try to come back to that baptism, to that event, and to remember it in a particular way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you aren't a follower of Jesus and you aren't someone who follows the habits and the practices of the Christian church. Maybe you're interested in Christianity, but you don't engage in things like communion or baptism. I want you to hear today how baptism and how this particular ritual is another way for you to see what Christianity is about. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized, but you are a disciple of Jesus. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. And for whatever reason, you haven't been baptized. For you this morning, I want you again to hear how this act, how these gestures, how this ritual in the church is important to you, even if you haven't been sprinkled or immersed in water. This morning, uh, we'll talk, uh, 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 I'll show you a little bit from the early church and from a document in the early church. We'll look at a passage in Matthew, and and, and I'll talk about three ways that Matthew talks about baptism. But before that, I want to give you a few ways that the church has often understood baptism pretty quickly. And, And the first thing is that baptism is a ritual practice in most Christian communities where where water uh, shows something else, where water is used to point to something else. Baptism is talked about as a sacramental act. The word sacrament is a word that first had to do with an oath that a soldier took. It, it, it also was a meaning applied to a real estate transaction. A, a, a Roman judge would take a security deposit and that would be a sacrament in the midst of a real estate transaction. And the church took the word, and I don't exactly know all of the connections. You know, sometimes in church we use words that mean one thing and we kind of baptize them and make them use... Uh, make them mean other things. And in some ways, we took the word sacrament and had this other third meaning that had to do with using what is physical, using what is tangible to display and to point to something that was not physical, that was not tangible. Uh, the, the church talked about the sacraments in general and baptism in particular as an outward sign of an invisible grace. 
There is a change in something um, that cannot be seen. You can see the water in baptism. You can see the bread and the cup in communion. But there is also something that cannot be seen. There is something invisible. There is present in the ritual grace. This Ritual of baptism tells us that a gift from God is present. It shows us through physical means that something else is present that is not strictly physical. A second about baptism is that baptism shows or points toward the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection is enacted in baptism. And so when someone goes down into the water, uh, that is symbolic of the death of Jesus. When someone emerges from the water, it is symbolic of Christ's raising or Christ's resurrection. It is a sign. It is a symbolic I, I, have, uh, I have weddings on my brain these days. Uh, there are uh, several folks in our church this year who have gotten married or who are getting married. Last week, I don't think Nick and Elena are here yet. Last Saturday, they got married and uh, celebrate them. And in a couple of weeks, Alvin, I see Alvin and Misuzu will be uh, getting married. And we're looking forward to that. And uh, I get to be a part of that as an officiant. And, and one of the things about, yeah, that's a thumbs up. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Get it right. Um, uh, as, as, as an officiant, I get to participate in this wedding ceremony and this celebration of these two folks coming together. And inside most wedding celebrations or ceremonies, there are tokens that are exchanged after the vows are exchanged. Often uh, there are rings that are exchanged. And, and there's a word or two about how the ring is a sign. The ring is a symbol of the vow. The ring is not the vow but it is a sign that a vow has been exchanged. It, it is a symbol to the person wearing it and to the person seeing it that there is a commitment behind what is seen. In the same way, baptism is a sign for the person being baptized and the, for the community of baptized people that something is happening, something has happened, some transformation has happened, and that transformation is grounded in the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lastly, third, baptism in the early church is a sign of initiation. It's a, it's a rite of initiation. It's uh, in the early church the way that they brought new members in. Uh, converts were supposed to know and to understand and to live by the central teachings of Jesus. They had the gospels. They had early epistles. And according, though, to the book of Acts, converts were baptized immediately. They, they came to faith. They confessed faith. And they were baptized upon conversion. But as the church went on, problems came up and uh, they, they had to sort of uh, reset. And you know, sometimes we develop procedures when the things that we were doing uh, are, are leave gaps and, and we find mistakes. And so the church uh, used to baptize people right away and found out that some of the folks who were saying through this gesture and this ritual with their lives, I believe, did not believe. 
People who were saying, I have died to myself and I have risen in the power of Christ, did not die to themselves, did not rise in the power of Christ. And so the church lengthened the time between conversion and a baptism. They lengthened the time for those who were called, who were lapsed, those who had walked away from the faith because they didn't mean it, those maybe who only were baptized because the head of the household was baptized and they didn't really uh, mean it in their hearts. They didn't really want to follow this way. They didn't really understand who this Jesus was and how he simply commanded everything about your life. And so they walked away from their baptism and from the faith. And so what the church did was said, let's, let's put some space between this rite of initiation and conversion to make sure that what people have said, they believed, they have lived, and they have actually believed. One document from the early church uh, that kind of chronicles how baptism is supposed to be done is called the Didache. And the Didache uh, is one of the earliest documents we have, frankly, that sort of tell us something about the ritual of baptism. It is what's called apocryphal literature. That means that it's extra biblical. It's outside of the Bible. It's, It's important. It's significant. But it doesn't rise to the level of biblical significance. So it's not in the canon of scripture, uh, at least in the Protestant church. You will notice that the, uh, the Catholic church uh, and their Bible includes apocryphal literature. The Didache would be kind of involved in that category of apocryphal literature. So think of your, your favorite Christian book. Think of your Christian author. Think of someone whose readings you read, and, and they aren't scripture, but they're complementary to scripture, and the Didache uh, is like that piece of material. And so I want to read a couple of quick p- passages from the Didache before we come to our passage in Matthew 28. And, and I want you to listen and to read and to see uh, what you notice in this. And I'm going to ask you uh, what you notice in the Didache. This is uh, from chapter 1, just the first uh, four verses. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself and do not do to another what you would not want done to you. This And these uh, sayings and the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. And fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same? But love those who hate you. And you shall not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn to him uh, the other also, and you shall be perfect. If someone impresses you for one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, give him your coat also. Give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not Now, let me ask you, what do you notice about uh, what you hear? And this is the part where, you know, one by one, you just kind of shout out what you notice. I'm asking you to be answered. Sounds like Jesus. Very hard to do. Very hard to do. Huh? What? 
Sounds like the gospel. Yeah, those three kind of cover it, really. So, you know, I don't need to kind of keep this going. The Didache is just yanking from the Gospels, yanking from Jesus, yanking from the one who says, follow me in this very long, hard, joy-filled, yes, but sometimes difficult course, impossible Christian life. So the Didache is using uh, the Gospels, using what is seen in Jesus to sort of start out uh, this early document. And now there are one, two, three, four, five, six chapters that we're not going to see. And in the seventh chapter of the Didache, um, the writer comes to uh, the language of baptism. And this is the entire seventh chapter. And this is just kind of pragmatics when it comes uh, to baptism. It says, and concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, that is the first six chapters, much of which is like the first four verses that we've heard, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have no living water, this is moving water, this is sort of fresh water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither, pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whoever else can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. The Didache is giving the early church really explicit directions and this is what the early uh, church needed because the, the, the community called uh, the church was new and so how do we implement these practices? Some of these practices are from our Jewish relatives. Some of these practices are right from the mouth of Jesus. What does it mean for us to do this, that, and the other? And so the Didache, the early church community, the church mothers and fathers came along and said this is how you do it. This is, these are parameters and boundaries for you as you baptized. Now, let's go to the earlier passage, which is our scripture for today, with these things in mind in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I've been talking for a while. Uh, I hope your vocal cords are warmed up. If not, take a few minutes and warm them up by reading God's word. Now, I don't, I tell you, I tell you, look, look, don't read this like you're already tired of it. Uh, This is the gospel according to Matthew. And so read these uh, verses uh, with your best voice this morning. If you read slow, you need to speed up. And if you read fast, you need to slow down. So read together. I'll drop out, but I have more talking to do. Let's go. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee.
Before I talk from God's word here about more about baptism, I want you to see two, um, let's call them bookends, really quickly. One is that the Jesus who is commanding his disciples to baptize, who's, who's telling his disciples to, to teach what I have taught you, the Jesus who is telling his disciples to go, is the one who says, all authority is mine. Jesus, when he says that I have been given all authority, is saying that I have the right, I have the ability, I have the capability. It is mine to say what I am about to say. All authority, all influence, all power is mine. And the Jesus who says that all authority has been given to me, on the other hand, is the Jesus who says that I will be with you always. So so when Jesus commands his followers, he is commanding as the one who has all authority to say what he is about to say. And he is also the one who will never leave the disciples as they live into what he has commanded them to live into. For some of you, this is the entire sermon because you already sort of readily get this, what church people have called the Great Commission. And your encouragement needs to be that this is not a Jesus who says to you a suggestion, who gives to you a possible direction for your life. But this is a Jesus who has all authority over your life. And that this is Jesus who will always be with you as you live that life. You can only be obedient to God when you realize that this is the one who has all authority, who will always be with me. The only way you can do this every day, this life called the Christian life, empowered by the Spirit of God, is when you recognize here and there, every day of your life, every step of your life, that the God who is in front of you, that the God who is behind you, that the God is to your left and to your right, is the one who has all rights of your life. That Jesus does not give you a suggestion to consider, but a command to obey. And that this Jesus is with you always. He says to his disciples, go and baptize. And baptism here is first, and I told you I have three, first a sign of, uh, uh, of invitation. Baptism is a sign of our invitation, of our ability uh, to come to God as sinners. God invites sinners to follow Jesus, the one who sends Jesus into the world and to his disciples. We in this passage does not invite people with problems or people with personal character flaws. The one who sends Jesus and who sends the disciples invites sinners. 
I was reading Michael Hyatt's blog. He's a, he's a writer and leadership consultant. He's a publishing executive. Um, and I read his blog because he has a lot to say about leadership and other things. And I was reading uh, a post the other week, and he talked about uh, the differences between people calling themselves uh, people who make mistakes uh, and sins. And he was sort of uh, talking about the difference. And he notes in a really quick way the difference between mistakes and sins, mistakes and transgressions. And I want to read just a, a, a quick bit from this blog. He says, the term mistake implies an error in judgment. Something done unintentionally. For example, a legitimate mistake might be turning onto a one-way street, going the wrong way. Pouring salt into your coffee, thinking it was sugar. Mistyping a web address and ending up on a porn site. These could all be legitimate mistakes. They happen because we get distracted or careless. But a sin is more than a mistake. It is a deliberate choice to do something you know is wrong. The word transgression is even stronger. It implies deliberately stepping over a boundary. The word trespass is similar. It implies entering into another person's property without permission. Unlike a mistake, we choose to sin. Therefore, we must accept responsibility for it and the consequences that follow. Now, Michael Hyatt goes on to talk about how we, when, when we, we need to choose to call sins uh, what they are. And that, to me, is a mark of Christian maturity when we're able uh, to say, that we are sinners, sinners who God uh, brings to faith, who God brings to redemption because of love through Christ. We are invited not as people with flaws or people who make mistakes, but people who are full of sin. We are invited by God into the kingdom of God. We are incorporated into a community of discipleship and the invitation and the incorporation is of sinners. I have in my life been invited to people's homes who didn't really invite me into their homes. Just the other week, somebody in this church said, you really should come by our house and I have no idea where they live. (laughs) Have you, ever, have you ever had an invitation like that where people, you know, say, you should come on over, and they never tell you when, you know, um, and you just kind of, and, 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 and that's a very, uh, that's an open invitation. It's a different kind of invitation. Um, and that's not the invitation that God gives. God invites you to come into the home of Jesus. Now, now, when God extends you the clear and bold invitation, it is this. It is sinner come. It's, it's not you who doesn't uh, make, you who simply makes mistakes or you who only chooses occasional wrongs. You who does more than slip up now and then. I want you 
You who realize that life is lifeless without me. I want you who knows that there is something missing in you when you are apart from me. I don't want people who make mistakes. I want people who are full of sins. I want you to come. And that is the invitation that Jesus extends to his first disciples and the invitation that we get extended to us. And we have to remember that this This is the work of God. This is not our work. We do respond. We do answer God's invitation. We believe. We follow. But God is the one who invites us. God is the one who brings us in. God is the one who works in us faith so that we can follow and live life in the kingdom of heaven. And baptism is that public display, that public sign, that public sight that God is pulling in the worst of us. And we are all worst. God is pulling in and inviting and incorporating you and me into God's home. The second thing uh, about baptism, it's a sign of invitation. It is also a sign of our formation. Say the word formation. Y'all lost y'all reading voice. Give me, give me your best voice. Say formation. formation. Formation is what a teacher does when she takes goals and objectives and a curriculum or a map and relates them to a student, to a learner. Formation is is what she does when she looks at what she's supposed to do and the learner before her and what he has or what she has, and she brings the two together. She forms an educational environment. Formation uh, is is what an artist does uh, with aluminum scraps and wood pieces and styrofoam cups and chicken wire and old discarded hangers from cleaners that don't recycle and take something and make something beautiful. Formation is what uh, Miles Davis and Chick Carrera and John Coltrane do with a note and make a melody. Formation is my mother making cornbread from scratch. Formation is Vivian Lou making me a chocolate cake. Hey, Vivian. Hey, hey. When the word formation is brought up around Jesus, it is a word that means uh, the daily shaping of your life so that it is life in the kingdom of God. Jesus forming you, the Spirit of God working in you, is God taking you and forming you. It, 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 it is, is, Bonhoeffer said that formation is Jesus taking form in the church. Formation is our being changed by Jesus. The, the elements and the pieces that we have being taken by God and remade. 
He says uh, to his disciples, the Savior says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As I said earlier, commands are not options. You, you do them because you are told to do them. And what does Jesus command? What does he instruct his disciples? He says to them, he teaches them that they are to go and to baptize. They are to live life as citizens of the kingdom, citizens under the rule of God, under the reign of God, under the sovereignty of God. God. When we are formed by Jesus, we are, we are formed by his words. When we are formed by Jesus, we are, we are made by his life. And, and I want to ask you to think about your last week. Think about the last few days of your life and to question yourself over the next moment how well you have allowed Jesus to form you. Have you been formed by the words of Jesus? Have you waited? Have you suffered? Have you struggled? Have you loved? Have you given with a view and with a hearing towards the words of Jesus? This relates to us because if we never read the words of Jesus, we can never know the words of Jesus. If you aren't encountering the text that reveals God to us, how well can you grow? How much can you be shaped? How well can you be formed? How much can you be transformed? Jesus says to his disciples, take what I have formed in you. Take how I have transformed you. Stanley Hauerwas has a a great commentary on the gospel of Matthew. And he, um, he says that the truth that is Jesus is a truth that requires discipleship for it is only by being transformed by what he has taught and by what he has done that we can come to know the way the world is. The only way we come to know the way the world is is by being transformed by what Jesus has taught, transformed by what Jesus has done. Lastly, baptism is a sign of our uh, invitation. It's a sign of our formation. It's a, and this doesn't rhyme. It's a, it's a, it's a sign of our mission. Um, we use this word mission in our church quite a lot. And I want to just kind of touch it very briefly because it's thick into the life of our church and in the language of our church. But I want to bring you back to just kind of the, the essential meaning here is Matthew lifts it up. Mission uh, is being sent. Say the word sent. The language in Matthew's gospel here is immediately about obedience. The only way um, that, that we have this setting in Galilee is because someone has been obedient. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Now, think back, and I didn't put this in the PowerPoint, but think back, if you have your Bible, just flip the page and see earlier in chapter 28, when the two Marys are coming to uh, the grave of Jesus, uh, Jesus says to them, go to the others and tell them to meet me in Galilee. And the only reason we have this great commission at the end of the chapter is because Mary and Mary were sent and they obeyed. Jesus. We would not have um, 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 the result of their obedience if they did not obey. We would not have this commission to the church and to you and to me if Mary and Mary didn't go and tell the others to come and meet Jesus. And here's the question that I want you to sit with over the next uh, few days. If Jesus was to call a meeting and, and the only people who were, were invited were the people you went to, that you were sent to, who would show up? Who would show up to the meeting that Jesus calls if Jesus sent you? And and I want you to think about your life for a moment because because being sent can get really theoretical and really sort of nebulous and really fuzzy. I want you to think about the places where you are already going, the places where you are sent. Where do you go later today on Sunday afternoon? Where do you go every Monday? Where do you go every Tuesday afternoon? Where do you go for lunch every Thursday? Where do you go on Friday night with the same group of friends? Where are you sent? And part of our Christian obedience is being able to see where we go as the places where God is sending us. Because we think of being sent as, well, when I'm done with this master's degree, I will get up and go somewhere else. But we never see that we are sent to that graduate seminar on Thursday morning at 9 o'clock and we're sent to be there for three hours. Mission is being sent. Mission number two is being sent to others. Jesus does in this passage what he has always done in his life and ministry. He extends the kingdom to people who are on the fringes, to people who are on the margins, to people who are cast aside, to people who are unincluded. Jesus does that in this commission. He does that when he tells his disciples to go to others. He sends them to the unloved. He commissions Mary and Mary of Magdalene. Earlier in Matthew, he does the same thing here with the rest of the disciples. Disciples. He says to them, go to others. Go to someone who is not here. Go to someone who has not heard about me. Go to someone who is not in touch with what you know, with what you've seen, with what you have experienced. And so what we need from you, new community, is, is to bring questions to, 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 our, to our ministry leaders and, and to our small groups. You need to bring questions, not like, uh, well, how do we just build community, but are we here for people who aren't here? Are, are we going to the, to the others of the world? Are we going to people who have not yet heard Jesus? Are we spending our time trying to reach men and women on the fringes who have not heard the gospel, who have not seen the gospel, who have not been impacted by the Jesus that we love. Mission is being sent. It is being sent to others. Lastly, mission is being sent to others to replicate transformation. 
It is being sent to others to, to, to repeat what has happened in us. And, and it gets confusing when we use a word like mission and being missional. And we have to sort of say that it is about being sent to others to replicate what God has already done. It is about being sent to others. It is about us being transformed so that God can use us to form Jesus in someone else. The commission at its core is an opportunity to replicate change. And I thought about you, Ashley, when I was thinking of this this point. Because transformed people transform people. And at some point, the evaluation of our souls has to be Have I transformed anybody? Now, this is not just you, of course. This is God in you. This is God using you. But have I transformed anyone? And if not, have I been transformed? And when you find yourself somewhere in the tension of, God has done so many things in my life. What does that mean for my life? You are right in the zone of of transformation and construction. It's nasty, it's scary, it's fearful, and it's God-honoring because it is right where disciples of Jesus live best. In the mess of all those questions of, God, you've done that in my life. God, you've done that in my life. God, you've done that in my heart. And how can I not be different? How can I withhold being a completely new creation from the people who are closest to me? Paul says in Romans 6 and 4, that we were baptized into Christ, buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. And, 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 and if you're here, uh, Grace, you on the keys? Come on up. Worship team, communion servers, come to your station. Come on. If you're here this morning and you are uh, wondering what baptism is, can I tell you how you live baptism, what this has to be about for your life? Can I tell you that the core of it is you uh, uh, sitting before God, walking before God, living before God, and saying, how have you invited me? How have you formed me? How have you sent me? God, how have you invited me, a sinner like me? God, how have you formed me? How have you transformed me? How have you changed me? How have you sent me? In some ways, this is a standalone message. In some ways, it's an anticipation of the next two really short sermon series that we will have capable folks in our church are, are preaching over the next several weeks. And, 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 I, and I want you, church, to sit for a moment 
And we don't do a lot of silence, and we won't do too much of it. I don't want you to be nervous, but I want you to sit for a moment, silent and to hear God for what in this message the Spirit is saying to you. God, our prayer is that our praise would be a response to your love for us. That all that we do would be because you love us. That the heart's cry from every one of us would be, Oh, how he loves me. Oh, I love you. God, we as your people love you. So let us live as if we love you. Let us live as if, God, you love us. As we go from this place, send us as your sons and your daughters. As we go from this place, send us to be your church for the world. As we go from this place, let us go as you transform this place. And every day of our lives, may our hearts cry be, we love you. Let our steps, our choices be a sweet sound in your ear. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. All of God's people say together, amen.